0: Our scripture reading today comes from the book of Matthew. We're going to be looking at chapter 20, verses 29 through 34. So I'd encourage you, if you have your Bibles, to open there. Beginning in verse 29, the Holy Scriptures read, And as they went out of Jericho, a great crowd followed him. And behold, there were two blind men sitting by the roadside. And when they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, Son of David." The crowd rebuked them, telling them to be silent, but they cried out all the more, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. And stopping, Jesus called them and said, what do you want me to do for you? They said to him, Lord, let our eyes be opened. And Jesus, in pity, touched their eyes, and immediately they recovered their sight and followed him. This is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me and for me as we begin? Father, We pray for the one here who is blind, not physically, but spiritually. So, Father, I pray that today would be the day of salvation for them, that they would cry out to the Messiah, the Son of David, and receive the healing that only he brings. Father, for those of us who have received that healing, sometimes we can revert to blindness, living as if we have no sight when we do. And so, Father, I pray for the one here today who's walking in darkness, stumbling away from you as a wandering sheep. I pray that they would return to the fold and receive the mercy of Christ, which comes to us freely and fully by the grace of God through the shed blood of Jesus on the cross. Help us to live by these things. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. When it comes to life-threatening illnesses... The ones that are the most deadly are usually the ones that you don't even know are there, which is why they are called silent killers. For example, cancer is a disease where the body's cell begin to grow uncontrollably and spread throughout all of the different vital organs, eventually leading to death. See, the way that the human body works is that it contains trillions of cells, And the way it's supposed to work is that when these cells become damaged or they just become too old, well, they're killed off and replaced then by new cells. However, when this process becomes disorderly, uh, these abnormal or damaged cells, they don't die off. They continue to reproduce, causing large tumors that come together and then get in the middle of your organs, which eventually leads to your death through organ failure. That's how cancer works. And sadly, scientists tell us that if cancer is caught early enough, then it is oftentimes usually pretty treatable. But what makes it untreatable is that the person with cancer doesn't even know that they have it. And so they continue on living their lives completely in the dark from knowing what's actually there until it's too late. The same is true of other silent killers like heart disease, which is also also referred to as, I'm going to try to say this, Atherosclerosis. The nurses will correct me, which and doctors, which occurs when the arteries become thick and stiff because of the buildup of plaque. Not plaque like on your teeth. It's a different kind of plaque. It's basically waste material from the human body. And this, when this occurs, it eventually becomes a silent killer. It leads to either one of two things: usually a stroke, which is when some of that plaque breaks off, and then it forms into a blood clot, which is life-threatening, and then you have a stroke, or the plaque builds up enough to make that artery very small, which eventually then leads to a heart attack. But either way, no matter if it's a stroke or a heart attack, the victim typically has no idea that their life is in threat until the silent killer strikes. There's tons of these silent killers from cardiomyopathy, which is a genetic problem with the heart muscle. You can have that genetic heart problem. I had a guy on our, on our football team in high school. He was going along, and boom, his heart just gave out because of the genetic issue of cardiomyopathy, to high blood pressure, to diabetes, to osteoporosis. In all of these cases, the person is attacked by a silent killer that they didn't even know was there. You know, when it comes to silent killers, though they are bad there's actually one that is infinitely so much worse than all of the silent killers we just mentioned. For this killer is not only actually responsible for all of those silent killers, but this is a silent killer that not only leads to our physical death, but one day it will lead to our spiritual death as well, which is so much infinitely worse than just a mere physical death. And yet, this silent killer is a problem that every single human faces, even if they don't know that it's there. It's a genetic problem. We're all born into this condition. And yet, our world is full of people who have no clue whatsoever that this silent killer lies dormant within them and will wreak its ugly head one day. This is why the Bible so often compares this silent killer, this terrible condition, to blindness. That's an illustration we often see throughout the Bible referring to this problem as blindness. And it does so because when it comes to our spiritual blindness, we can't even see how blind we are. A lot of times we think we have vision, we can see things properly spiritually, we're doing okay. But no, the silent killer of sin, which is the deadliest one of them all, is lying there ready to destroy us. And one day it will strike. And so if we want to avoid that, we're going to have to become unblinded to our blindness, right? Because if we're blind and we don't even know that we're blind, we're going to have to become unblinded to our blindness. Well, how do we do that? Well, our text this morning shows us how to do that, and it comes by recognizing three things, and here they are. To avoid being blinded to blindness, we must recognize the problem of blindness first, and secondly, the deception of blindness, and then finally, the cure for blindness. If you have your Bibles, look at Matthew 20. We're going to read 29 through 30 here. Being 29, I'm going to read it again. It says, As they went out from Jericho, a great crowd followed him. And behold, there were two blind men sitting by the roadside. And when they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. As we saw last week, this section in Matthew's gospel marks a major transition in Jesus's earthly ministry. And what is that? Jesus is headed to Jerusalem for the purpose of dying on the cross. That's why he's headed there. And in our passage this morning, Jesus is on his way there just days before Passover to be the Passover lamb for all of humanity. And so beginning here, we enter what is commonly called Jesus's Passion Week, or Holy Week, which covers actually just the last seven days of Jesus's life before his crucifixion, death, and resurrection. And so if you think about this, this means that Matthew, he's taking, I think the math is right here, 28 chapters, uh, seven chapters. Okay, one-fourth, math people can correct me if I'm wrong here, one-fourth of his book is dedicated to this last week of Jesus's life. You realize that? One week of Jesus's life takes a fourth of Matthew's gospel. And I think that's because of how incredibly important and significant this last week is. It's huge. In this last week, we see major things happening in Jesus' ministry. We see the triumphal entry, which we're going to look at next Sunday. We see the cleansing of the temple and what a controversial cleansing that was. We see the curse of the fig tree, several highly, very important parables We find Jesus's final interaction with the religious leaders, with his final public interaction, we should say, who are trying to trap him. They bring up questions like taxes. Hey, do we pay our taxes or not? They bring up questions about marriage and say, hey, if so-and-so was married to so-and-so and they die and they remarry and they die and they remarry and they have like three different people they've married to or whatever, who they married to in heaven. And all of these questions then lead to Jesus's pronouncement of the woes over the scribes and the Pharisees. And then we have a very significant chapter, Matthew 24. If you know what's in that, you know it's about the end times. It's about eschatology, revelation, the return of Christ, the second coming and the ends of the age. And so when it comes to all these significantly, significantly important events in Jesus' life, we're going to be looking at these over the next probably six months, I'm thinking, maybe a little longer. But I'll just say this, you don't want to miss this. This is incredibly significant, And so I think what we should do here right now is all of us just commit to no one misses church until we get through this, and then we'll renegotiate the deal when we get done with Matthew. Now, I know that's not always possible, sickness traveling comes up, but if you can't be here, I'll just say be sure to catch up on the recordings uh, because this is vitally, crucially important stuff. In fact, maybe you haven't thought about this before, but I've been thinking about this this last week. Um, But what we do on Sundays, as God's people, it's the most important thing you will do all week. Have you thought of it that way? This is the most important thing you will do all week, because it's the most important thing you're going to do in your life. You think about what we do in this life, how much of it is going to pass away in eternity. I won't be preaching in eternity, I'll tell you that much. But you know what I will be doing? Leading worship, singing in worship, being a part of the worship, just as we just did with the body of Christ. So, all that's for free. Take it or leave it. All right, so of that overview explanation, um, and because it's for free, just for the record, that doesn't count against my time. So, And if you don't like that, well, I hold all the cards because it's potluck Sunday, so we don't eat till I'm done. All right, back to our text. Jesus is heading to Jerusalem with his disciples, and he's surrounded by larger than normal crowds. Like he often would have crowds following him, but here there's even larger crowds. And why? Well, it's because in addition to the normal crowds that follow Jesus, we have all of the pilgrims who are headed here to Jerusalem for the Passover feast. And in the midst of this, we have the incident of the blind men or man, and it happens after Jesus leaves Jericho, or maybe it was on his way to Jericho, I don't know. Which is it? Was there one blind man or two? Was it leaving from Jericho or going to Jericho? Well, that depends on which gospel you read. Because if you've read all three accounts of this, which show up in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you're going to see there's different information in all three of these. See, in Matthew, it happens as they leave Jericho and it's two blind men. But in Mark and Luke, it happens as they approach Jericho and it's one blind man. So, uh uh-oh, right? looks like we got a bit of a contradiction here in our Bibles, which is a problem because as Christians, we believe the Bible is the perfect, inerrant, which means without error, word of God, which is why we base our entire lives upon it as our sole authority. And yet we have a contradiction here, it seems. Well, I guess pack it up. Let's all head home and maybe we can sell this building and turn it into a nice funeral home or something. Now, that's what skeptics will tell you. They're going to say, look, you got contradictions right here. Your whole faith, your whole system, it's a sham. Can't you see the blatant contradictions right here? Now, you probably saw this coming, but I'm going to disagree. I think there is an alternative conclusion here that explains and synchronizes these texts in a way that is logically consistent and makes sense. So here it is. First, let's deal with the Jericho thing. All right, It's actually quite simple. Um, let's put it this way. Have you ever been to Bombay? Anybody here ever been to Bombay? You've been to Bombay. So what was it like in New York? Because there's a Bombay, New York, and there's also a Bombay, India. It's the same thing here with Jericho. There's old Jericho and there's new Jericho, which is a perfectly reasonable explanation. All right. What about the beggar thing? Is it one beggar or two? Well, it's two. So is Mark and Luke have a contradiction here? No. And why not? Because if I tell one person that last week I took my son Lewis to the park and then in a different situation I talk about how I took Lewis and Ian to the park, am I lying? No. I'm just focusing on one part of the story, of the truth. I'm taking just a narrower focus, which is just, hey, here's what me and Lewis did at the park in this one situation. And then with the other person, I'm talking about, hey, here's what me, Ian, and Lewis did at the park. It's the same thing with the blind men here. For whatever reason, Mark and Luke focus on just the one blind man here, uh, who is Bartimaeus, and Matthew focuses on both of them. And that's not a contradiction. Now, maybe you're thinking, Who cares? Well, I'm going to argue that we should care because we should be concerned whether our Bible has contradictions, right? We don't, believe, we don't have blind faith. We don't just believe because, hey, that's some virtuous thing. No, we have faith in a substance, which is truth, which is the truth of Jesus Christ as revealed through Christ's word. And since the Bible is the foundation of our faith, I think we better take it seriously if there's contradictions in it. And I don't think there are. Uh, Another reason we're addressing this is because I'm hoping that the kids and teenagers in our room are paying attention because someday you're going to be sitting in a coffee shop, a classroom, or maybe online in a chat room, and some skeptic's going to point this out to you with a, hmm, see, gotcha, look on their face. Okay, I know they don't call them chat rooms anymore, but that's how they started, so I'm all deal with it. But if you think there's a high likely, unlikelihood of that happening, I can tell you it's very likely. I've had it happen to me several times. In fact, in my early 20s when it first happened, I had this gut-sinking feeling which was not a very good response to skeptics' good questions. And so not only is it a bad response to not know for them, but it's bad for yourself. It's bad for your own faith. And so we have reasons for our faith. Uh scripture tells us to be prepared in season and out of season to give a defense for the reasons of our faith. It's a logical faith that we have. We don't have blind faith. All right, enough of that. Back to the narrative. So they're on their way from Jericho to Jericho, and Jesus passes by the one and two blind men on the road and In this, Matthew focuses on both of these blind men, and Mark and Luke focus on just the one, as we said, was named Bartimaeus, who often is called blind Bartimaeus, who didn't stay blind for so long, as we've read. But uh, Bartimaeus, he actually likely became someone who was very well known in the early church, which makes sense then why Mark and Luke, which Matthew's written to the Jewish people and Mark and Luke, they have different audiences like the Gentiles and stuff, but it makes sense why they would bring up Bartimaeus specifically and ignore the other guy because it's like they're saying, Hey, yeah, you know, your friend Bartimaeus, let me tell you about how his story started. And it would have stuck out to their readers in a way that it wouldn't have with Matthew so much. So it makes sense why that would be a different focus in these gospels. So here there are these two blind men begging along the road in the days leading up to Passover, and they're hoping to get some money. They're hoping to have with all these people coming by that, you know, they're going to strike the jackpot here and they're going to get a whole lot of food, money, uh, clothing, things like that, because they're blind. Back in their day, blind people, you were like the lowest on the totem pole of society. You had nothing to offer. There were not all of these extravagant systems set up to take care of you. No, you had to fend for yourself. It was a very difficult thing. And to make matters worse, back in Jesus' day, they often believed, because the scribes and Pharisees taught this nonsense, they believed that if you were blind, it was often because your parents sinned or because you did. And that's not the case always, is it? It absolutely isn't. And so you've got to imagine this. If you want to close your eyes, it might help. But... I think it probably will help. But try to imagine that you're one of these blind guys. Boom, your vision's gone. You can't see anything. What do you hear? Also, you hear the rustle of the crowds coming by. And blind people, remember, their senses, their other senses that work, they don't have vision. So they have to make up for them. And they become much more acute with their hearing, with their smell, and they're just, you know, just the, their environment going on around them through those senses. And so here they are begging, listening to the hustle and bustle of the crowds pass by, and suddenly they can tell something's changed. Something's different is going on with the commotion in the crowds. And what do they hear? Oh, here comes Jesus of Nazareth. Oh, the one who's been healing people? Yeah, that's him. He's been healing people, and he's headed up to Jerusalem. In fact, he's not far behind me. He's coming up shortly here. This is the kind of things they would be hearing probably. And so upon hearing this, the blind men know that their chance has finally arrived, their chance to no longer be blind, to be unblinded to their blindness, we might say. And so what do they do? They use their voice very loudly, shouting, Lord, have mercy on us. And then they top it all off with son of David. Well, what's that? Well, that's a title we've seen already through Matthew's gospel, and it's a messianic title that comes from 2 Samuel chapter 7, which is basically these blind guys' way of showing that they're seeing something that most of the crowd doesn't actually see, which is what? That Jesus wasn't just a great teacher, though he was a good teacher. He wasn't just a great healer, though he was a great healer. Jesus was none other than the prophesied Messiah who was told to come and heal God's people. And so these two blind men not only recognize the problem of their physical blindness, really, as we're going to see here, they're recognizing Jesus as the Messiah who has come to heal their spiritual blindness, which they would continue on having if Jesus had just merely healed their physical sight. They would have continued on spiritually blind because spiritual blindness is the ultimate silent killer, which is out to get all of us. And unless it's healed, It don't matter how much physical healing we have in this life, it all ends in the same result. Isaiah nine, two says this The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell in the land of deep darkness, on them a light has shone. This is precisely what has happened to these two blind men. They walked in darkness spiritually and physically, and a light dawns on them, both physically and spiritually. It's remarkable. For though they were blind, they did come to see the deception of their own spiritual blindness, which could only be healed through the Messiah, through the Lord, through the son of David, which leads us to our second point. (laughs) To avoid being blinded to blindness, we must recognize the problem of blindness, but secondly, the deception of blindness. Look at verse 31. Scriptures read, The crowd rebuked them, telling them to be silent, but they cried out all the more, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. So after the two blind men here who are in need of healing, hear that the great healer is coming by, what do the crowds do? Shh, Be quiet. Shut up. And why? Because in their mind, Jesus was much too, there's more important things going on, right? Then you yeah, he heals, but you know what? Here's the reality. We got a kingdom to set up. We got stuff going on here, way more important than your mere piddly problems of not having physical sight. Yes, I know he's done some healing in the past here, but you know what? All of that's actually distracting him from his main job, which is getting Rome out of here and set up the kingdom. You know, all these important, Shh, you be quiet. That's what they do. And I was thinking about this, and as bad as a response as that was from the crowd, do you know what I find to be a whole lot worse? Is when that is the response of the church. Isn't that the case often? And if you think it never happens, well, I got news for you. It absolutely does. Someone shows up at church, and okay, maybe they aren't physically blind, uh, but they've got some major blindness going on. Maybe it's social blindness. They're completely awkward and just just weird, you know, like just to put it blunt, they're just weird. Okay. Uh, maybe they've got some relational blindness and they show up with the conflict in their life and it's, it's heavy. It's serious stuff. Whatever it is, they show up with their problem. And what do we do? Shh, Shut up. Be quiet. We got stuff going on here. We, we're trying to do church. Don't you know that? We don't have time for your piddly little problems. We're here to worship our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Don't you know that? And so they come with their problems looking for help, and we rush them off, hushing them, treating them as if they are a second-class citizen. It's remarkable. This often happens in Christchurch, church. And why? Because the level of blindness that even the scene can sometimes have compares to that of people who are truly blind. And yet, in response to the crowd shushing, what do these two men do? They cry out all the more, Matthew says. Because unlike the crowds, they were not blind to their ultimate need, to their ultimate condition. And what was that condition? It wasn't just mere blindness, mere physical blindness. But as we discussed, it was spiritual blindness. A blindness that is so blind that a person could, think about this, a person could literally be in the crowds following Jesus, seeing his miracles, and say, nah, not, not the Messiah. Not, it couldn't be him. That's how blind we are. And if you think we're any different from the crowds, we're not. We're exactly the same. These people saw the miracles, the teaching, the remarkable life of Jesus, the perfect holy life. And what did they end up doing? They ended up shouting, crucify him, crucify him. We will not have that man reign over us. That's the blind state of the human heart. Your heart, my heart. Which is why I find it interesting when people say things like, oh, wouldn't it have been so wonderful to live back in Jesus' day? To see all the miracles? Can you imagine how strong our faith would be if we saw that? I say, not necessarily. Not if you're spiritually blind. It's not going to help you one bit. And if you don't agree, then explain to me how so many people can see and hear the word of God and go on unmoved. They go on unmoved just like the crowds did. Think about this. Do you remember the story of Lazarus and the rich man? Well, what happens in that story? Well, the rich man dies. He goes to the place of torment, hell, hates, whatever you want to call it. And then he asks Abraham to send someone back to speak to his brothers. Why? So they don't end up where he is. And do you remember what Abraham says to him? Here's what he says. They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. What does Abraham say back then? Look at verse 31. He says, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. And oh, how true that was. Because with Jesus, he died and miraculously rose from the dead three days later. And what did the people do? They continued largely on in their unbelief. In fact, the religious leaders, what they do? They paid off guards to cover the whole thing up. It's like, no, 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 we can't have this. I mean, look at the level of spiritual blindness in these people. It's remarkable. The truth is, if a person does not believe the law and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. And that's precisely what happened with Christ. And why? It's because they're spiritually blind. And in the face of such blindness, all of the evidence in the world will not Fix the problem. It won't do it. There's only one thing that can solve it, which is our third point we're getting to here the cure for blindness. The one and only cure for blindness. The scribes and the Pharisees had that problem, didn't they? Yes, they absolutely did. Which is why in Jesus' earthly ministry, he called them blind guides. He said, Hey, look at these people, they're the blind leading the blind. It's kind of humorous if You think about that, seeing a blind person trying to lead another blind person around. All it's going to happen, he says, they're both going to fall into the same pit. And why were they blind? Ultimately, it was because they believed that their works of righteousness were enough to cure the problem, enough to solve the problem. They didn't think that they needed that grace thing. They didn't think that they needed that mercy thing. That was for the really bad people like maybe actually blind people because remember their parents sinned, they sinned. Those are the people that need that, not us. We're fine, we're okay. We're the sons of Abraham, they thought. And yet exactly what they needed was grace and mercy because that's what every spiritually blind person on the planet needs to receive the cure for blindness. And it's something that these two men recognize, despite their physically blind state. And so they continue to call out all the more upon Jesus, begging him to heal them. And remarkably, what does Jesus do? He stops and does exactly that. Look at verses 32 through 34. And stopping, Jesus called them and said, What do you want me to do for you? And they said, Lord, let our eyes be opened. And Jesus, look at these next two words, in pity. Or in compassion, we might say, touched their eyes, and immediately they recovered their sight and followed him. This is remarkable. Think about this. Here was Jesus on his way to the cross. And what does he do? Pauses to take time to show compassion on the least of these, on the outcasts of society. It's remarkable. What compassion! What mercy, what grace, and ultimately, if you think about that, what hope that should give us, who are very imperfect sinners, who do not live up to the law of God, not even remotely close, even on our best days. And so this should give us great hope, because it shows us the depths of Jesus' love, care, and compassion for us. He's not indifferent to our pain. He's not indifferent to the suffering of this world. In fact, he hates it. I think of Lazarus. What happened when he showed up and Lazarus was dead? He bellowed with anger. Think of a hurting lion. That's his response to seeing the suffering of this world. And that was with Lazarus, who he was about to raise from the dead two seconds later. Jesus hates the suffering in this world. He has great pity and compassion for it. So much so that he not only stops to heal these men, but he then continues on and picks up his march towards the cross. Because without that, that cure would have been temporary. It would not have been a permanent cure for the silent killer called sin still would have ultimately led to these two men's spiritual death in an eternity called hell. On the cross, Christ, the great healer and helper, do you realize what he did? He refused to heal and help himself. He could have called down 10,000 legions of angels, boom, like that. Could have solved the whole thing right there. Could have avoided the entire thing. But he did so, why? Because that was the only way for us to be healed. The only way for us to be healed. And if he hadn't, we would have been left in our blindness, completely oblivious to how blind we were, oblivious to sin that was there, the silent killer, which would have eventually led us to face the eternal wrath of God, which was a situation we would never be able to handle. And so in Jesus's day, if you think about this, how different were the rabbis from this rabbi? Were they, did they gravitate towards the poor? No. Did they gravitate towards the social outcast, the blind, the diseased? No, they had no time for them. Because those people couldn't help further their agenda. And yet with Jesus, what does he do? Those are the people he gravitates towards. The hurting, the broken, the outcasts. Not towards the rich, as we saw with the rich young ruler, not towards the powerful, as we see with the religious leaders, but towards the meek. And this brings us back to his Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5. Let's read this. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they shall be satisfied. Can a meek, rich person be blessed and enter the kingdom of heaven? Absolutely they can. It's difficult. It's more difficult than a camel going through the eye of the needle. And with man, it's impossible. But as Jesus says, with God, all things are possible. Can Can you be a meek religious person who is blessed or does your religious status and power exclude you from that blessing? No, not if you're meek. Can you inherit the kingdom of heaven as a healthy person who has no physical problems whatsoever? Well, if you're meek, you can. You see this? Because if that's not the case, all of us here would be out without hope. Every single one of us here would be out without hope. What is required then here to be blessed, to inherit the kingdom? What is necessary? Faith. Meekness-based faith. Faith. And that's precisely what these two men had, which is why in Mark's account, he says this, go your way, your faith has made you well. And immediately, they, both of these men recovered their sight and they followed Jesus on his way. Do you see the core problem of the human condition? It's a problem where we think that we are okay before God. Yeah, sure, maybe we got some things to work on, but ultimately we're okay. I'm not as bad as all the rest of the people. I'm not as blind as that blind guy over there or those two blind guys over there. But that's the way we think. It's a problem where we think that our status in life, our riches or our righteousness or even our religious obedience make us worthy of inheriting the kingdom. We think that those things solve the spiritual blindness that we all have. But hear me when I say this, it doesn't. It doesn't solve it. It doesn't even scratch the surface on solving it. Paul tells us all of our works, all of that effort before God, apart from Christ, you know what that is? It's filthy rags. So you could live seven billion lifetimes accumulating filthy rags. It ain't gonna get you into heaven. The dress code is way higher than filthy rags. And what is the dress code of heaven? Perfect righteousness, the robes of Christ's righteousness, which only come to us by grace through faith in Jesus. And so, when we come to Christ meek and poor in spirit, when we mourn over our repentance, when we mourn in repentance over our sin, when we come to hunger and thirst, not for self righteousness in us, but for a righteousness that's not our own, that comes only through Jesus Christ, and then we humbly and meekly throw ourselves upon the mercy of God, crying out in faith, saying, Lord, Son of David, have mercy upon me. When that happens, That alone makes us worthy of the kingdom of heaven. That alone cures our spiritual blindness. Because as we do that, Jesus reaches out every single time and he heals. Not just physical healing, though I will say physical healing is guaranteed in the atonement, just not in this life, right? Like we're all guaranteed physical healing, but for almost all of us, that is going to come After our death, just as Jesus died and rose and experienced the new body healing, we will experience that as well. But right now, when Jesus reaches out and he heals us, he does give us that deeper spiritual healing that we all absolutely need. You know, I don't need to be a prophet to recognize that there's almost assuredly people in this room who are a part of the faithless crowd, people who are close to Jesus because they're close to the church, right? So like the people in the crowd, they were close to Jesus and they thought that, you know, hey, I'm okay. I'm all right. I'm close to Jesus. This is fine. And yet they couldn't have been more further away from him, could they? There's some here who are even bustling along next to him, thinking all is well, but but it's not well. For the cure for the ultimate silent killer is actually still at large, just waiting to be administered to them in that final act called death which then leads to spiritual death. And why? Because they have not yet come to repent of their sins and turn in faith to the Savior. That's the only cure. That's the only solution to this problem. Now, maybe you're here and you realize, you know what, what, you're right, preacher. I have not done that yet, but I'm thinking about it. And I'm, you know, I'm weighing things. I'm maybe, I'll probably do that maybe at some point. And maybe you think that because you look back at your life and you're like, you know what, if I look at my life, I'm pretty sure that I haven't done that. The evidence leans towards that conclusion for sure. If that's you, hear me when I say this. Don't miss your moment. Don't miss your moment. Did these two blind men have all the time in the world to cry out and seek Jesus' healing? Did they? No. As far as we know, this was their one opportunity to cry out to Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of David, and say, Lord, have mercy upon me. And make no mistake, this might be your only moment or your last moment to do so. And if you think that's not a real thing, well, two things. I would point you to Acts 17, when Paul preaches to the people at Mars Hill, there's some there and how do they respond? They say, hmm, interesting. We will hear more about this from you later. How often do people do that? All the time. They put it off. And yet, no one knows the day or the hour when the silent killer of death will ultimately strike them or when Christ might return at any moment. But by putting this off, another thing to consider is you might very well be hardening your heart just like Pharaoh did to the point where you're beyond repentance. And if you don't think that's a real thing, I would encourage you to read the book of Hebrews. It talks about that, how we can continue to callous our hearts to turn from the convicting call of the spirit and say, no, later, we will hear you about this again, you know, just as the people on Mars Hill did. And so instead of being like Pharaoh or the men of Mars Hill, who should we be like? Well, how about these two blind men who call upon Jesus by faith, asking him to have mercy on them, and when he does, what does that bring? It brings not just physical healing for them, but the spiritual healing, which is the ultimate silent killer solution. And here is the thing that's so remarkable about this: is when you do, you'll be able to sing. And I love one of this, this new song that we're singing from Psalms. Here is the lyrics: You'll be able to sing truly from the heart through mercy and compassion. His great love is proved. He covers my transgressions like the snow. As far as east from west are all my sins removed. Bless the Lord, O my soul. And when you can sing that truly, out of the healing you've received by God's grace through faith in Jesus, you will be the blessed man of Matthew chapter 5. And you can confidently know that you will inherit the kingdom, not because of your works of righteousness, not because of self-righteousness you've achieved, but because you've sought after a righteousness that's not your own, which only comes through Jesus Christ. What hope this is. This should thrill us to the bones, should it not? We have salvation through Jesus, ultimate spiritual healing through him, and nothing can take that away. Not sin, not suffering, not even death, not even a bad week can take that away. Do you realize that, Christian? I don't care how much you failed this last week, your eternal state is not in jeopardy. You've been saved, not by your righteousness, but by Christ's righteousness. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for this story of the the two blind men. Father, I pray for the one here who is blind, who's blinded to their blindness, who's walking along next to Christ via Christ's body, which is the church, and yet they couldn't be more further from him. And it's because, not because they're not living up to the righteousness of Christ, but because they're not trusting by faith in the righteousness, which only is accredited through faith. So, Father, I pray for that person, that today would be the day of salvation. That they would reach out and talk to someone. That they would turn to Christ and then let us know that they did, so that we can rejoice with them. And then after that, like the two, the two blind men, that they would go on to become disciples of Jesus as they follow him for all their days. Father, I pray for the Christian here today who is covering their hand over their eyes, living as if they're blind when they're not. Father, help them to remove that hand and look back upon Jesus, who is the author and finisher of our faith. And so, Lord, I just pray that we would, in meekness and humility, that we would follow Christ all of our days, that we would live for him, not the things of this world, not the idols that surround us that are passing away so quickly soon. And so, Father, we pray that by the power of your Spirit that we would live victoriously for you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen you stand with us as we sing our closing? We have two songs we're going to sing. Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing. Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing, my great Redeemer's praise, the glories of my God and King, the triumphs of His grace. Hear Him, ye deaf, ye praise ye dumb, your loosened tongues employ. Ye blind, behold, your Savior come, and leap your lame for joy.